If you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Ephesians 4, uh, starting at verse 1 through, through verse 6. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. It goes like this. Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church, or uh, good afternoon, or good evening, whenever you may be watching this. Hope you guys are all doing well today. Uh, you have probably not heard the name Marcus Patton before, but you might have heard his story last month, or at least one similar to it. Uh, story goes like this, that a few weeks ago, Patton was driving home from work in uh, Norwalk, Ohio, where he lives. He was driving home and making his way by at a gas station, wanted to put a little bit of air in his tires. And while he was there, he decided also that he would hit up the ATM there at the gas station, pull out a little cash, and so he did that. And, and then after withdrawing his cash, he, he looked down to check his receipt to, to see what the balance was in his account. Because uh, Patton, just like you and I, uh, had been... Uh, watching and tracking his checking account for some time, watching for that stimulus check to finally get deposited in there. But when he looked down on the receipt, he couldn't see the account balance anywhere on that. He, he thought that was a little strange, so he kind of stuffed it in his pocket and started walking to his car, and, and then he decided to, to check it again. And he pulled the receipt out, and, and sure enough, the, the balance was there, it's just that there were so many digits in that balance that he had confused it for his account number the first time he looked at it. Uh, and that's because the IRS had uh, deposited his stimulus check in there. But rather than depositing the two or 3000 that he was expecting, they had mistakenly deposited $7.7 .7 million into Marcus Patton's account. Uh, he, he looked down and he could not believe what he was seeing there on the receipt. Uh, and, and so he called up his wife and, and put her on FaceTime and showed her the receipt, and she couldn't believe it either. They were both just ecstatic. He drove home, kicked open the door to his house, and the first thing he said was, kids, pack your bags, we're moving somewhere warm. Uh, but unfortunately for, for Marcus Patton, his, his wife had been doing a little bit of research in the, in the 15 minutes that it took him to get home, and she discovered that this is actually something that had happened around the country in a number of different places where, by some kind of glitch, the IRS had accidentally deposited millions into people's account, the wrong amount into their accounts. And that meant, of course, that the money did not belong to them and, and, and that the IRS would be taking it back shortly. And, and sure enough, uh, about 30 minutes later, they checked the account and all the money was gone. Um, they had 
fixed the mistake and they were back to the same place where they were. Uh, later, when a, a news team was coming and doing a story on it, uh, Amanda Patton, his wife, had said that it was a huge bummer, but it was, it was at least nice to be able to say that at one point in their life they had been millionaires, even if it was just for 30 minutes. Um, I want you to, for just a second, try to imagine yourself in the Patton's shoes, to kind of put yourself there. Imagine that you've been watching your bank account every day to see when the money's coming in, and then one day you look in there and there has been $7 million deposited in your account. Now imagine with me that you, you go through the same process as the patents. You're doing the, the research and you realize the IRS has been making mistakes, so you sadly go forward to the IRS and explain their mistake and, and tell them they can take the money back. But, but then they tell you, uh, look, we, we don't know what to tell you, but we didn't put that money in your account. That wasn't us. And so you start digging and doing some research and you, you realize it wasn't them. It was, it was put in there by someone else. And, and as it turns out, there's just some, some rich, wealthy individual in America who's just decided because, man, things are hard and, and I want to do something to help people out and to kind of lift people's spirits. And so they've just selected 10 people, 10 families in America that they just decided could use a break. And they deposited $7 million in each one of those families' accounts one of them being yours, which means that that money belongs to you now. You get the money, and, and just like that, overnight, your entire life has been changed. What would you do in that situation? Now, the question we normally ask is, what would you do with the money? That's not what I mean here. I, I want to ask you this question. How would you respond in that situation, specifically to that person who gave you that money? Like, I don't know what the etiquette is on life-changing donations to you, but, but I got to think that like a thank you card doesn't quite cut it in that situation. So how do you respond to someone who has done that much for you? Someone you didn't even know and you didn't do anything to earn it, it just happened. How would you respond? Uh, take a minute, actually, first discussion question. Take a minute to kind of talk about that with if you're there in the room with somebody. Um, if it's just you, you can pause and think about that. How do you respond to someone who would bless you in that great of a manner? What kind of thank you, what kind of gratitude could you give to that person that can even hope to match up with what they've done for you. Take a minute just to talk about that. So we're in Ephesians 4 today. Scott just read that passage to you, and uh, I don't know how familiar you are with the book of Ephesians, but the layout of this letter is, is pretty cool. Uh, the way it works is that Ephesians is, the, is, is set up in six different chapters, okay, six chapters long, and yet, if you read through that book, you will find that there are no real commands or instructions about how we're supposed to live or what we're supposed to do until chapter four. That is, the passage that we just read, chapters 4, 1 through 3 there, are the very first commands or instructions that are given in the entire book. The whole, uh, the whole first half of that book, the first three chapters, are spent doing nothing but telling us what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. The identity that he's given us in Christ, the grace and the love and the mercy that he's poured out on us in Christ, the way he has brought us to himself. And, and Paul, when he writes this book, he, he explains these gospel truths in the first three chapters in just some beautiful and profound 
language. Like, for example, in chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, where Paul says this, that God adopted us as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. Or in chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, where Paul says that even though you and I were dead in our sins, that God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. Or chapter 3, verse 12, where he explains to us that in Jesus we have boldness and confident access to God through faith in him. And Paul just front ends his whole letter with all of this talk. The reason why I think is because he wants to make sure that we get the order right, that the gospel works differently than all the other man-made religions in the world. In every other religion, I do things in order to gain access to God. I, I do things in order for him to love me. I do things in order for him to accept me. The gospel works opposite of that, and that is that I am accepted by God before I did anything that I am loved by him before I did anything. It is only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ that he gives me access and that he adopts me as his son. And then the works come. And then I respond to that with grateful obedience. And, and that's where Paul leads us into chapter 4. He's told us all that God has done, and now he's going to lead us into the response. So here's how it unfolds in chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Paul says this. Therefore, that is, in light of everything I just told you, in light of all that God has done for you in Jesus, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received. In other words, Paul says, it's time to respond appropriately. You just got a multi-million dollar donation uh, gift given into your a bank account. And so now it's time for you to respond in a way that is right, to live a life worthy of the calling that you have been given, the one that you have received. So the question is, what is that response? What does it look like to live worthy? Uh, listen, a, a $7 million donation or gift pales in comparison to what Paul has just described about the way that God has treated us. Dude, riches for eternity, the blessings of living in his grace and in his presence for all eternity far outweighs any monetary gift that we could give. So how in the world do you respond to that? What kind of life might God call us to after giving to us like that. And, and you may expect something very extreme or radical. Like, like you could see Paul right here saying, therefore, in light of that, every one of you ought to drop everything you're doing and move to the other side of the world and be missionaries in some unreached people group. And, and, and that would be an acceptable request to make after all that God has done for us. Or, or you could see him saying something like, uh, every Christian ought to renounce all their worldly possessions and become a monk or, or, or become a nun and take a vow of silence or something. And, and that might be extreme, but th that would be acceptable for him to, to make that kind of request from us. But, but here's what Paul actually says we ought to do, starting in verse 1 again. Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit 
through the bond of peace. So in other words, get along with each other. I mean, it, it's a little deeper than that. It's, it's loving one another well and loving each other deeply. But the gist of it is, get along with each other. Treat each other well. Be kind. Now, maybe it's just me, but does that seem a little anticlimactic to you? I mean, after all the things that he's told us God has done for us and all the things that he could ask of us and call us to, this is where Paul goes. Love each other well. Uh, be patient with each other. Be humble. And in case maybe you're thinking, well, maybe Paul's just starting small. He's just starting with kind of the mundane day-to-day, -day, and then he's going to work us up to the bigger things. No. If you read through the rest of Ephesians, pretty much all of it has to do with our interactions with one another within the church, our relationships with our other brothers and sisters in Christ. One New Testament scholar goes so far to say that verses 1 through 3 that we just read are basically the summary of what it is to live worthy of the calling we've received. And the rest of Ephesians is just commentary on those three verses. It's just explaining kind of the practical ins and outs of those. And unless you think, well, maybe this is just Ephesians, but if you go to Romans or if you go to 1 Corinthians, you'll see some of the bigger things that Paul's really concerned about. No, I mean, Paul talks about other things in his letters, but he puts a lot of emphasis on this idea of how we treat one another. In fact, that phrase, one another, comes up 40 different times in Paul's writings. He's not alone in this. The other New Testament writers put a heavy emphasis on our interactions with one another within the church. And the reason they do is because that's what Jesus did. John 13, 35, Jesus says this, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You see, that is the first great measurement of whether you are living a life worthy of Jesus is this. How do you treat other Christians? What's your attitude towards other Christians? How do you talk to one another? How well do you do at forgiving one another? How good are you at expressing grace to people? That is the first great measurement of a life matching up with what Jesus has called us to. But unfortunately, it would seem like a lot of Christians maybe didn't get that memo. Uh, hear me, I, I'm not uh, one of those people who likes to throw the church under the bus here. Uh, there are a lot of people who like to do that and say that the church is just always fighting and always divided and, and all of those things. No, I, I, I think sometimes the critique that the church gets on this is unfair. Sometimes the church fights about things that it should fight about doctrinal purity and holiness and, and, and things like that. But if you know your church history very well at all, scratch that. If you have been in a church for very long at all, you know that the church has often found things to fight over. Some of them important, but a whole lot of them are not. A lot of things that Christians fight over are silly little things, personality issues and pride and selfishness and, and just ridiculous things, to be quite honest. Now, again, the world does too, right? It's not just Christians who do these things. No, have you been on social media in the last four or five years? 
If you so, you know that the world finds plenty of things to bicker about and fight about and, and argue about and be outraged about. That's what the world does, but this is the very point, is that in a me-first, combative, divisive world that we live in, the church is supposed to be something different. We're not supposed to look like everyone else around us. So you may have noticed uh, that a lot of people have a lot of opinions about this whole coronavirus thing. Don't know if you've caught that or not. But, but there are a lot of people who feel a lot of different things, and pretty much from the outset of this, those feelings have been expressed. From like week one, there were people who were outraged at the government for not stepping up and doing something soon enough. And there were people who were outraged at the government for sweeping in too soon or for infringing on individual rights. There were people outraged at the media for hyping this whole thing up too much. And there were others who were outraged that the media wasn't giving it enough uh, attention and, and taking it seriously enough. And then, of course, we weren't just mad at government or at media, but, but what you found is we began to grow mad at other people. People who didn't respond in the way that I felt we should respond. People who didn't act like I was acting in the middle of this thing. And it did not take long for kind of factions to set up in different points. And, and you had hashtag stay home trending and you had hashtag in the lockdown um, ending and all kinds of things that were going around as people began to grow more and more angry. And, and truthfully, it shouldn't surprise us. Um, in an increasingly divided culture, it's not odd for people to be divided over something as big as this. It's not odd for the world to be um, dismissive of people who disagree with me. It's not weird that people are being mean-spirited about something like this. What is a little bit odd, or at least should be, is when the people of God look no different sometimes. When we respond to things like a pandemic with the same level of anger and the same level of dismissiveness and the same level of harshness that the world does around us. Uh, I had a friend last week who told me about going over to visit uh, his grandma with the rest of his family. This has kind of been a practice they've been doing over the last several weeks. His grandma lives in town, but, but she lives uh, by herself. And so they've, once or twice a week, they'll go over there and they'll, they'll go outside and they'll visit each other outside on the, on the front porch or in the yard there, kind of socially distant, you know, and spend some time hanging out. And so they were there talking and hanging out. Well, turns out grandma had been posting some things on Facebook with her own opinions recently about how people should be handling this pandemic and how they should be responding to this. And, and not everyone in the family agreed with that. And, and so a discussion developed. And it did not take very long for that discussion to turn into an argument. And emotions began to run high, and people began to raise their voice, and people began talking over each other and, and shouting. And then it ended with people just kind of leaving in a huff as they rant and raved on the way home about how ignorant so-and-so was about this thing. And, and I don't know about you, that's not the only instance I've heard of something like that happening. I've heard of multiple of that this week. I've seen a fair level of it on Facebook, on Twitter, from Christians with that kind of attitude, that kind of tone in their language talking about these things. You've probably experienced and seen some of this yourself. Here's where I know that there are probably some who are thinking, but, but Drew, like this, this matters. This is important. 
Like, it's important that we get this right. It's important that we handle this well. And if people aren't handling it, they need to know that the truth needs to be told. And, and listen, I, I do agree that this is a big deal. I mean, there are people that this really matters to because when people talk about this, a lot of people are thinking of, of loved ones they have that are particularly susceptible to illness or that are working kind of on the front lines in, in the medical field. Uh, there are other people who, when they are talking and thinking about it, they're, they're wondering about their job, whether they're even going to have one when this thing's over. They're wondering if their business is going to make it through this. And they're seeing their savings that they've, that they've been storing up for years. They're seeing that dwindle in front of their very eyes. So this is a big deal. It's, it's important and, and it's perfectly okay and natural for us to have strong feelings and strong opinions about it. That stuff is all right. But if I cannot hold to those ideas and opinions that I have with some level of humility... If I have no ability with my words and thoughts and my actions towards brothers and sisters, if I cannot express those with a level of gentleness and patience, if I don't have the ability to, to bear with my brothers and sisters in Christ or a willingness to extend grace to people that I disagree with, then listen, I've already lost. Whether I win the argument or not, whether I'm right or not, I'm living in a manner that is not worthy of the gospel, and that should not be us church. There will be, over the next several weeks as we transition back into normal-ish, there's going to be a lot of opportunities for us to act like the world in all of this or to act like the church, to act like the people of God. When we, when we start our first on-site meeting, some of us will be here and some of us won't. When life groups start meeting together, some groups will come together or some couples or families, some won't. And, and all of that is okay. At every step, we will have areas where we may disagree about how to go about these things. But when we do those things, we have a chance to look like the world or a chance to look differently. And, and rather than being frustrated, rather than questioning the motives of our brothers and sisters, my prayer and hope for us is this, that we will be ready to bear with one another in love, that we will be ready to be patient and gentle like Jesus in times like this. For some of you, this pandemic has, has not created so much of an issue of uh, with, with people outside as much as it is with people kind of inside, like your own home. For some of you, you haven't had a problem with Facebook rants or anger towards people or those kinds of things, but, but the truth is, in the middle of this shelter-in-place, you spend a whole lot more time in your house with people than you usually do, homeschooling your kids or working from home, and you're around people a lot more. And, and the truth for you is that, that if you were to read through this list in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, things like patience and gentleness and bearing with one another, those are not ideas that have marked your own attitude towards your family at times. And I say, I, I'd like to say that's not me, but my family's going to be watching this. And, and so they could, they could jump on Facebook real quick and let you all know there have been times where I have been guilty of being irritable with, my, with the people I love most with the brothers and sisters in Christ that live within my own home and that has come across in ways that are harsh. And I've had to repent. I've had to ask for forgiveness. Ephesians 4 has needed to be something that has marked my life in a more deep and profound way as I respond to what God has done for, for me. 
there are others of you who this, this whole kind of shelter-in-place thing has worked out pretty well for you because you, you kind of like um, not being places or not going to church because the truth is there's some people that, that you just rather not be around. There are some people even at this church that, that when you find yourself around them, you feel kind of your heart rate going up a little bit. People that, that maybe they've hurt you at Sunnybrook or maybe, maybe their personality just rubs you the wrong way. Maybe they just exasperate you. But this text calls you to love, to care for, to walk beside even them. That phrase there, um, where Paul says that I call you in, in verse 2, he says to be bearing with one another in love. That idea there, actually, is to put up with someone. It's, it's literally translated that way in other parts of the New Testament, to put up with one another, which, which sounds kind of negative at first, but, but he adds to it, in love. So uh, I'm not just resigning myself to the fact that i got to be around this person. No, I am moving towards them. I'm, I'm wanting what is good for them. I'm praying for them. I'm caring about them. But, but that idea of put up, it implies that there are going to be people in the church that I do not agree with. It implies that there are going to be times when people in the church rub me the wrong way, when there, there are going to be people that, that my personality just bumps up against those. And even those, Paul says, I am called to love them well. This church is what it looks like for us to live a life worthy of the calling we've received. Why, though? Why is it? Of all the things that Paul could be talking about after explaining the gospel to us, why is it the first place that he goes to explain to us a worthy life is to talk about how we interact with other brothers and sisters in Christ, to talk about how we treat them? Why does that matter so much? Is it, is it because it's just everything works out better when we get along? Uh, is it because maybe we can accomplish more together than we can alone? Or, or, or maybe it's because um, for my own personal health and emotional state, uh, things go better when I'm not in conflict, when I'm not living with a bitterness towards someone. So all, all those things, I guess, are true. But, but that's not the reasoning Paul gives behind this. To see that, you have to go into the next couple of verses. Let me show those to you. Chapter 4, starting in verse 4, he says this. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. The reason Paul says that it is so important for us to live like this, to live loving one another and walking with one another, is because oneness and unity is at the core of what it means to belong to God. That we are a people who have placed our faith in one God and one Lord, and our common faith and our common baptism has brought us together in Christ. Seven times in verses 4 through 6, he uses the word one to try and get this point across, and he wants to make it clear that Jesus died for this. That Jesus did not just die to reconcile us to God. He died to reconcile us to one another. He actually explains this in Ephesians 2 when he tries to talk about um, this gap, this social divide between Jews and Gentiles, which was one of the largest divides in the world at the time because it wasn't just a divide of, of cultural um, implications, but of social implications and of racial implications and of, and of religious implications. It was huge. Paul says that this is what happens to that in Jesus. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 14, he says this, 
For he, that's Jesus, is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body, through the cross, by which he put the hostility to death. Paul says this, that what Jesus did on the cross was he took this deep dividing line between these two groups and he completely eradicated it. He, he didn't take these two and reconcile them and bring them close together. No, no, no. He made them one. That's what he did by his death on the cross. He made us one. And, and, and I think that's even significant that Paul in Ephesians 4 is not calling you and I to live as one. He's not calling the church to be one body, to be one group. No, no, no. He already told us in Ephesians 2, Jesus already did that. I'm already one with my brother in Christ. I'm already one with my sister, no matter what side of the political spectrum they are, no matter what race they are, no matter whether they're hashtag stay home or in the lockdown, I am one with those people. And so the question is not, will we as a church be one, be unified? The question is, will we live out the truth or are we going to live a lie? Are we going to live out the truth of what Christ has done, or are we going to live just like the rest of the world? This is too important for us to ignore. This is what Christ died for. This is what he made us to be. And my hope and prayer is not just in the coming months as we work through this transition, but in the rest of our lives that we will look different than the world because Jesus has made us different by his death and resurrection.